We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to verse 1 in chapter 7. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or that's a, another name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be, your, I will be the father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty, since, notice the ground here, since we have these promises, beloved, which is a covenantal term. It is not just dear friends. It's, a, it's a, an endearing term of people who are involved in this covenant with God. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now remember, context means everything. We just don't, do not look at a passage and say we can understand its meaning without knowing what went before it and what comes after. Now remember, Paul is, since chapter 2, has been giving an apology or a defense of his ministry to the Corinthians because of these false teachers who have infiltrated the ranks, teaching something contrary. We don't know really the specifics. Many people speculate, but it seems to be something that is including Judaism, which is almost a, a, a triumphal kind of Christianity, where people are deserving the blessings now. And I'm not trying to read in anything to, to, uh, to kind of... Uh, uh, make people or make ministries that I've been talking about uh, guilty, but these are other, what other people even say, other scholars and other pastors and preachers teach that this is a, a, a kind of a syncretism of, 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 uh, of religions that they are bringing in because they are spraying as many people as possible and trying to enamor them, trying to make them feel good, trying to attract them. Not calling them sinners, not dealing with sin, but painting a picture for them that is not what the Bible teaches. Or if it does, they go off on a tangent and spend so much time on the secondary issues rather than they do on the primary issues. And Paul has a real problem with them. And we have seen that, as we, I have not talked about it, but we have these different letters and these different visits that we spent a lot of time talking about in the beginning and throughout this book that Paul had a painful visit. He had a painful letter because they no longer want anything to do with Paul. They were angered with Paul. They were listening to these 
servants, as Paul writes, of Satan, these false apostles, these super apostles who were self-acclaimed apostles, not, not apostles sent by God, as Paul writes. And so they were being in the time of Greek and Roman rhetoric, of, in the time of argumentation, they were doing so well, they were so uh, articul- uh, they were so they were be able to articulate the gospel, and they were great orators, which was the the uh, the criteria or the entertainment of uh, of the people back then, and the the signs and um, um, characteristics of people that spoke then. Where because we see Paul not doing a very good job, not very exciting, not great to look at, look at, and pathetic in his ministry because these people look like God has blessed them, and he does not. Because all he has for them is his stripes and his scars and his wounds and his history of being imprisoned for them, but yet impassionately telling them about his love for them. And so we see that in the context, notice as we looked last week, he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, We have spoken freely to you two Corinthians, our heart is wide open. He, understand, he tells them, you understand where I'm coming from. I've been spending all of this pen work and all this writing, and I've been writing chapters to you. Of course, there were no chapters then, but just writing this to you to explain how much I love you. You can't say that these super people, don't, they love you. They're here for the entertainment. They're here for the celebrity. They're here because you're paying them. He says, but our heart, the apostles' heart, the people who follow uh, the apostles, his assistants all come around and saying, they say, you know where we're coming from. You know our heart, he says. Our heart is wide open. There are no secrets. This is who I am. And he says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own, he says, by your own affections. You are torn. And the reason why you are not following me, it is not because of us. I have put none, or neither have any of my followers or any of the apostles put any obstacle in your way. We have not deviated from love and from our language of the gospel. And then notice he says in verse 13, in return he goes, I speak as to children, as he a spiritual father speaking to this church which God gave him the power and the ability to find and to establish. And so in a sense, he is their spiritual father because many came under God's grace and God's spirit under being transformed by his work of regeneration. He says, but you are restricted on your own affections. I, in return, he goes, speak to you as children. He goes, I am telling you, and he gives this command, widen your hearts. You understand? You're being difficult here. Open your heart, he says. Listen. Look at the evidence. And then notice, in verse 2 of chapter 7, he repeats this by saying, make room in your hearts for us. Yet this passage seems to be out of order. Many people say that. Many scholars have written all kinds of pages on this, seeing that this is a sidebar or somebody added this and this is not Paul's writing. And th- Why? It doesn't seem to fit. 
He's talking about widening his heart, their hearts. And then he says it again in verse 2. How does all of a sudden he goes, don't get equally, unequally yoked. Where does this, how does this all fit in? What, what does this mean? Is it, does, does Paul go on a tangent and just had to get this out so he stuck it here? And the answer is not because this passage is talking about a result of widening their hearts. By widening their hearts to Paul and to the Lord, there is a consequence or an action that is expected by that kind of response. If you say you love me, then we need to expect this kind of behavior. That's not difficult for us to take in. We say we're this. We do this. Paul is writing this saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which, again, is important for us to get the context because this is always referred to as for us when we're talking about getting in relationships and getting involved is saying that here, this is a proof text for us, and it is. It's a text that is powerfully used for us to be in specific and unique relationships with believers only. And that as we, as a parent and as a pastor, you know, I'm always telling my daughters and my sons, but some I don't have as believers, but so I talk to my daughters as believers because they seem to exhibit this desire to follow Jesus and a passion for it, is that the last things I said to them when I dropped them off to school, I looked at them and said, Amanda, Emma, no Jesus, no love. And they look at me, all right, Dad. And I'm sure we use this same kind of things with our kids or with our children in our Sunday school classes or in our families or whoever we find ourselves in a context of Christianity, of Christian faith in a community, we tell them that you have to realize who do you get involved with when you make a relationship. But yet Paul is writing this in the context, in the context of the church. So primarily, to let you hear the zinger of this, is Paul is writing to the Corinthians not to deal and not to be involved with people within the church who are acting like and speaking like unbelievers. That's what he's talking about. Now, yes, it does mean a broader context about marriage and about other kinds of relationships because he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, again, this out of context and without sobriety and wisdom and love and grace can be a hammer, can it not? We find ourselves uh, saying, oh, then we don't have anything to do with, Christ with unbelievers at all. We don't get involved. We don't have anything to do in society. We have our own separate Christian campgrounds and our own Christian amusement parks and our own Christian this and our own Christian that. And he's not telling us to pull away. We are aliens, and he wants us to remember that, and he tells us many times, but he's not telling us to pull away because Paul has written in other places. In 1 Corinthians, he writes to us, 
He is saying, I'm telling you not to be involved with the sexually immoral, all these different traits of sins. He is saying, don't be involved with them. He is saying then, though, in the next verse, he says, in chapter 5, in verse 10 it is, he says, but I am not telling you not to have any relationships or not dealing with the world because it would be impossible for you to try to isolate yourself from everybody because you'd have to get out of this world because you're surrounded by them. So that doesn't make any sense that we make, as some call it, a Christian ghetto. We isolate ourselves so much that we make sure that we protect everybody and everything so much that we are no worldly good. We have no earthly ministry whatsoever. Because in Jeremiah, remember Tim Keller, and he's given, you know, about the whole gospel life, and he talks about how being in this community, being in this world as believers, we do what we can to make it a better place to live in. We do what we can for these people we live with. We, make, we try to enhance their lives. We try to make their communities better. So you can't read into this of pulling yourself out of it because you can't do that. You can't. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians, he goes, I'm not here and neither should we judge the world. It is not my business to judge the world, but what do we judge? We judge the church. That's our responsibility. That's why I talk to you about commending yourselves and contending yourselves to this group of people we call churches in the United States and the people we, because we, we, we call ourselves fellow believers and, and with them, is that we need to make sure that what they are peddling as Christianity is really Christianity and the people that are affected by that realize what is going on there. Now notice what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And now he gives these contrasts. Notice these contrasts. He gives a statement, okay? This is an imperative. He gives a command, and as you've heard me say, indicatives and imperatives. He doesn't give you an imperative without giving you an indicative. He doesn't give you a to-do without telling you the reason why you are to do this or the basis for doing this. As it says in Romans 12, in light of chapters 1 through 11, now offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of everything that Paul has expounded in verse chapters 1 through 11, the book of Romans, he says, therefore, offer your bodies. There's the imperative, based upon 11 chapters. Even here we see he gives an imperative, but he gives us a reason why. Why should we be Royal behavior, because he says, as you've heard me say, because we are royal blood. That's why. He says, for what per partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I mean, can these be any greater contrast, light and darkness? We understand what that means on a common grace and just on a horizontal level, but from a biblical perspective, we certainly, as we looked at the Gospel of John, what light means and what darkness means. And we understand 
because we've been given the Holy Spirit, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we understand how we used to be in darkness, and now we understand what light is. And I hope you understand what that means. When the light goes on and you see things, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he goes, you're a new creation, because the lights come on. You now have a whole new paradigm. Your paradigm from the old has shifted and cracked. You're completely new. And you have a new understanding of who you are, of who everybody else is, and why you exist. And when everything you come across is all under the purview, under the lenses of faith in Christ. What accord has Christ with Satan? Here, Belial is an extra-biblical term used in Judaism, which means that Satan is here um, actively an opposer. So that's why he used the word Belial, because Belial has this term of actively opposing Christ or God. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? I mean, these are stark contrasts, and you and I know what the answer is, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. That's the argument. How can you say that we want to be in relationships with the world? And again, we need to be careful when we get to this point, when we talk about being unequally yoked, because we can get on a rampage and come up with the wrong list. And notice Paul does not give us a list anywhere of what that looks like. Because what happens when we take lists? We become moralists. We are obedient by grace. We become moralists. Lord, give me a list. I'll check it off so I can feel good about what I've done. And he doesn't give us a list. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't be involved in this. He opens it so wide, but makes it very clear by these contrasts that we have some wisdom to make this decision. You see that? That's what its basis is. Light and darkness righteousness and lawlessness somebody who obeys the law and somebody gives who gives two rips about the law those are so different he is saying these are the kinds of relationships that you need to be careful of getting yourself involved with now let me read to you yoked what it means to be yoked turn with me in uh Leviticus 19. Now, sometimes people use the uh, phrase in Deuteronomy 22, I think it's no 22, I wrote that down. Yeah, 22.10, where it says, do not yoke an ox with something else or with unequally yoked animals that are working together that are on a, a yoke to to uh, plow the field and whenever I hear that all I can do is think of the movie Ben-Hur and remember Charlton Heston is is uh, has been riding in the chariots races and in, in, in uh, Rome and knows his stuff and uh, when he was on the dark side <laughs> and uh, uh, and then all of a sudden, this uh, Middle Eastern man has these beautiful horses, and, and, and uh, Charlton Heston is 
Ben-Hur looks at it and he says, well, these horses aren't hooked up properly. He says, they're fighting each other. They have different agendas. He goes, put this one over here. And he goes, they'll fly like lightning. They'll fly like the wind, he says. So I think about that, and that's what he's saying here about do not have these animals working under the same unit but not being able to work together. But the word yoke is not used in that sentence. <laughs> it's, it's always brought there, and many people bring it there. But what is best is Leviticus 19, because I think it gives us a better flavor of what he is, the intensity of what he's talking about here. Verse 19 of Leviticus 19, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Because what happens? When you mix breed, you start breaking down the breed. Something has to break down. The breeds cannot stay whole, cannot stay pure. And so something has to break down. So why put ourselves in the risk of being yoked with somebody where we are put in a situation where there is a risk and a possibility that you may not win, but the relationship you're in may influence who you are. It's who we are as an identity. Being yoked means having an identity or taking on the identity of the other thing or person that we are yoked with. Turn with me to a powerful uh, statement and a powerful scenario in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Now this does pertain to marriage, but this is really powerful of what is being lost here. This unequally yoking or this breeding with or mixing breeds or mixing loyalties or uh, 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 allegiances for the sake of passion, or love, or convenience. Ezra talks about intermarriage, and he says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. They have become yoked with people from the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the Lord of God Israel, because of the faithful, faithlessness of the return exiles, 
gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. For the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, had been given into the hands of the kings of this land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is to today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by our Lord to leave us a remnant, to give us secure hold within this whole, his holy place, and that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving. Notice he is saying the actions of these people should have been a foregone conclusion because of the grace. It is the indicative. Who are they? They are the people of God. They are the remnant of God. They have felt the grace of God. And what are they doing? They are yoking themselves with unbelievers. He says, oh, verse 10, O oh, now, O oh God, our God, shall we say after this, for we have forsaken your commandments. Notice he says in verse 11, The land that you are entering, take possession of it. It is a land impure, with the impurity of people of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace and the peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Which is a noble thing, but in the eyes of God is a sinful thing because they forgot the bigger story. They forgot the reason why they exist. They forgot the reason why they're even alive. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consume us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? This is how dreadful Ezra thought of their disobedience by being yoked, by being so involved. They came back, they needed to have children, they wanted to have families, they wanted to leave their inheritance, but they disobeyed God by, telling, by him telling them that you need to be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that certainly goes a long way for us, as it talks about marriage, to us believing that what God is saying for us is that he says in chapter 7 of the book of 1 Corinthians again, he is saying that if, you, if your husband dies, you're a woman is, is um, his wife until he dies, and then when he dies she is free to marry, but only in the Lord. He does that specifically. So we cannot, we cannot make tolerance, we cannot show any latitude whatsoever on the fact 
that when it comes to believers marrying unbelievers, that they are not following the Lord. Is it the unforgivable sin? No, it is not. But nobody tells us, as I tell my daughters and I told young people, that God hasn't given you your body as a missionary tool. You don't, new, you don't use your heart, you don't use your emotions, you don't do anything that's going to put you in a situation that you're going to have to choose. So why start the relationship? Spoken as a father, and as a pastor, and from the word of God, is it not plain as day? There was a young girl that came to my office, and my office when I was in Massachusetts was right next to the kitchen and right next to the living room. So the door was wide open, and she came in, and she was crying. And I said, oh, golly. So I said, come on in, come on in. We, I, we've known each other. I was at the church for a while and knew the family. I was really involved. I was the associate pastor at the church. So she came in, and I said, what's the matter? She goes, I'm here, and I want, I'm crying because I know that you're going to tell me the truth and I don't want to hear it. And it was <laughs> about a relationship. Should I? And I said, your tears have answered your own question. I don't need to say anything. Your guilt in your conscience says it all. But he is now saying that not only is it about marriage, because that does, that's an intimate mixing. That's an intimate relationship. What that means outside of that, folks, is that I'm not coming up with a list for you. So I'm sorry if you think you're going to come here and say, Pastor Jim is going to actually tell us what this all means and what can be safe. How can I be safe? It's done within the community. It's done within the context of this side-by-side, -side, walking with others in wisdom and love. That's why we are committed to a church. That's why we belong to a church. That's why we are committed to it. Because of this great gift that God has given to us, as Proverbs says, in the counsel of many, there is safety. Nobody's telling you to do this on your own. God hasn't left you on your own. If you're believers, it's the church. It's the place where God has given you to find how God wants you to live your life as long as you understand the gospel. Always going back to the gospel. Are you a believer? I guess so. Tell me reasons. If they can't articulate it, then you have to go back to the ABCs of faith. Do you understand what the gospel's all about? Or have you bought in to some other garbage that somebody else has told you? Or you've read some Christian book that is totally anemic to the Christian faith? So you need to go back, and that's our job. Our jobs as pastors, as the session, as one who is a family of God to these children, to each other, is that this is where we find the safety within the confines of this community that God has created. So, that's why we investigate people when they want to become members. And when they become people who eat and drink of the Lord's Supper. And those who want to have their either be baptized or their children baptized. We want to make sure that there isn't this yoking going on with unbelievers. Because, folks, we're only as good as the people we let in. Now, it isn't that we're going to know we can be duped, and I have been duped. I've been lied to. I've been told a tremendously articulate testimony to find out 
that this person doesn't have a clue. That's why we investigate. That's why we, it says, in, when Paul writes, I want you to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Do you understand the gospel? That's why I told you, I had people call me up and be so angry with me. Why don't you want to baptize my child? Why are you angry with my child? I'm not angry with your child. I've got a problem with you. We want to get married in this church. Why? Cut out, cut out mannequins. Cut out pieces. Find some place. Make it look like a church. But you're not getting married. And you're not just doing this because you want to pick this place to get married because it makes a great card and makes great photographs. This is where Paul is saying the contrast is so blatant. So he is throwing this now in their face. In their face, because he is saying to them, and this is a judgmental call by Paul, not by you and me, Paul is saying to them, he is saying to them this, these people that are super apostles and everybody who follows them, they are acting as and speaking like unbelievers have nothing to do with them. Wow, that's tough. That's what he is saying. Separate yourself from them. And the reasons he gives is this. He goes, the indicative, verse 16. You are the temple of the living God. That's who you are. So you should act this way. He gives this command. Do not be unequally yoked because you are the temple of the living God. And notice what he says here in these covenantal promises. He goes back to the Old Testament, which for them was, at the time, that's what they had. They didn't have a New Testament in their back pocket. For we are the temple of the living God. And the word here for temple, there's two words for temple in Greek. There's a word called heron, which means it is the complex or the general campus of the temple. And then there is the naos, which is the very holy of holies, the very place where God dwells. This is what he's talking about here. You are the naos. He says, you are the very temple of the living God. And notice he explains himself. He goes, and then he goes into promises. And he, if you have a reference Bible, hopefully you do. And in it, it has the re- footnotes or reference text on the side. It tells you that they came from Leviticus chapter 26. I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's given indicative there, an indicative. This is who you have. These are the promises both from Leviticus and from Ezekiel, which is the law and the prophets, as Jesus says, I've been, I, I, I'm, you, know, you can find me in the law and the prophets. From wherever you're reading from, he is saying the promise of God is this. I, as a covenant God, who promises to bless you, will do this. The promise of restoration for Israel was that God was going to make his dwelling place among them and walk among them like he did in the Garden of Eden until that great alienation took place after Genesis 3. He goes, I'm going back. In fact, it's going to be better than that. I'm not going to be just walking around. I am going to be in them. I will be their God. They will be my people. He is telling them these are the promises that are from the Old Testament 
And remember I said before, and what we're going to go on to say, is that all the promises in the Old Testament, Paul is saying, if you reject me, you reject my message. If you reject my message, you reject Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you reject the king and the kingdom that he brings. Remember me saying that to you. That's what he talks about. He is saying you can go with him, but realize that you are rejecting the gospel. That's how hard he is about contending for the faith, which we need not to be cowards, but be full of grace and mercy and question people. Why are they doing what they do? Why are they following? Why are they going? What are they doing? Because he says, I don't want you to believe in vain. Therefore, he says, another imperative from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. Therefore, go out from their midst. Therefore, touch no unclean thing. Therefore, he says, um, separate from them, he says. This is Paul, I mean, uh, Isaiah, speaking in Isaiah, chapter 52, in that suffering servant uh, section, before it says, and he was, he was crushed for our transgressions and and for our iniquities in chapter 53. In chapter 52, he uses these, these uh, verses, in, chapter, in verse 11 on, he talks about the people of Israel like priests. He goes, you have the vessels of God, meaning that they have the word of God. They have the temple. They interact. They are the people that, this is that hope, as Martin Luther said, in the future you will become a priesthood of believers. And that's what Jesus has been talking about. He is saying here, now act like priests. Act like holy priests. People who act like you are the temple of the living God. That you care about it. It's like people, you, you know, people are very cautious of this place. You're very cautious of this sanctuary. Some people are not. Some people are worse in certain sanctuaries. And protective of making sure that everything's picked up. And there are no papers around, and that there is no food, and there's no drinks, and there's no this, and there's no that. That you don't have anything to bring any distaste or to bring any uh, uh, kind of wear and tear on the sanctuary. He is saying, he don't. He's not talking about the building. He is talking about you and me as the temple of the living God that we should protect ourselves as if we other people do protect the very edifice and the building of, the, of, of God. He's saying don't allow these things to take place in your life. Don't give them an inch. Why? He says because in verse 18... I will, these are the promises from Ezekiel and Samuel and Isaiah. He gives all these different, different reasons. He goes, then I will be, welcome you. I will be a father to you. I shall be your, you shall be my sons and my daughters. He even adds on daughters to now bring in the fact that it includes everybody. Even it did them before, but just to make sure that they are all covered by grace. He even expands the language. And Paul takes, as you see, it's one citation, but there's six different passages that he cites here. And he adds some to some and uses language from another to bring these citations to let you see that he says to them, by you denying my gospel or the gospel of Christ and denying Christ and denying who I am, you have denied the very fact that you are the restored people of God. That you are the people of God. The blessings that God has talked about in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, the new, the second coming of Christ, 
I mean, the first coming of Christ and understanding what that means, and now that the second uh, exodus that he talks about in there is not an exodus of like the first exodus, but a second exodus of one that will end out of slavery of sin, out of bondage of sin. That's the exodus that Jesus has taken us out of. That's why he is saying, if you go back to that, you are back in bondage again. You are stuck in that exodus. You are still exiled from God. God is still your enemy. How do we know that? Because he says in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises indicative, beloved, let us cleanse. Here's the imperative. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, body and soul, our physical bodies and our spiritual lives, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you not fear God? Yes, and you remember we talking about the sense of fearing God and understanding who he is, and yeah, we don't want to say that I'm afraid of God, but there's a sense of reverence for God, but what drives us to the point of understanding who God is is that God is a God of wrath and he's a God of judgment and you do not want to be on the wrong side of God. And that's where Paul is bringing it from. He is telling them again, you've got these promises. You love God, but you also have to understand that none of these promises are yours. So be careful who you yoke yourself with because who you ally yourself with, ally yourself with, or who you mix with, or who you get in relationships with, or who you allow to be in relationships with, whatever that looks like, folks, and that's a conversation to have for our lives. Be careful that it is not one that changes your identity. Just because I do some plumbing, I am not a plumber. But when I sign up for a political party, I am identified with that political party. If I put, as I was talking with Brandon last week and the week before about the Chatham jersey and Ichabod Crane jersey, if I wore my Ichabod Crane jersey, I identify myself with, the, with Ichabod Crane riders. Whether I am or not, the consequences come from being a part of that, right? I am identified. I may be from Chatham and have an Ichabod Crane jacket on, but goes to Chatham and they don't know who I am and beat me to a pulp. Right? Because you have changed your identity. I hope that makes sense. And I know what's going on, but this is such an important... I wish the church was filled with people today because this is so important to you as individuals, to you as family, to this church, and to the church in America. Because we need to be careful of who we say that we're followers with. We cannot have... inter. I'll tell you right now... You cannot, you sh- a, a, unbel- a believer should have nothing to do romantically with an unbeliever. Just not happen at all. That's easy. To be able to be a part of interfaiths, you'll never find me, ever find me in an interfaith meeting. Because what does darkness have to do with light? And cults and organizations that say, that you are, when you become part of this organization, you have now passed over to, from darkness into light. And we need to be careful who we assign ourselves with and align ourselves to with, and even getting jobs. I left a job because I was put in a situation where I was being forced to tell people things that I did not want to tell anymore. 
And I couldn't find myself. And it had ramifications for years. That, Jim, you're going to have to go and tell them this. Why? I had nothing to do with it. Oh, yeah, you are. You represent us. You've got to go and tell them. You did it. You tell them. No, you're the representative. You go and tell them. I left. With great, great consequences to my family's life. And I worked with people who called themselves Christians and went along with it. Who later called me up and apologized for their actions. We have to, this is an important decision that comes from wisdom and love. This is why we belong to a group of people that understand the gospel from the very beginning and the ramifications from that and how we now want to live our lives wholly unto the Lord because we are the naos of God. To the Jew, that must have been mind-blowing. That God of the universe now lives in me and you, I mean, I can't, I understand it because I've grown up into it. But for a Jew, that's so difficult to understand that I couldn't go in there, I'd die. Now that God is living in me? Could you see how long it took to swallow that pill? It's like swallowing an elephant. I got to take it a piece at a time. It's so overwhelming. So we need to be like Ezra, not about marriages, but about the holiness of our conduct, the holiness of a church, because the actions of one or two people in this congregation can screw up our reputation out there. It's happened, not here only, it happens across churches everywhere. We're no longer people of the gospel, we are such and such who went to that church or belonged to that church, and you've heard me say, maybe, I don't know if I said it here, that when politicians used to go around, which were knocking on our door already, and they put on their... I was the pastor of the church that this guy went to. He put on there, and I never see him in church. And I said, I'm the pastor of this church. You never step foot in this church. He goes, oh, well, I said, that's a lie. You're not a member of that church. Your name may be on the roster, but that's not the case. That's a lie. Are you courageous enough to tell people that? Because you have to be. Because it's about the gospel. It's about who we find ourselves aligned to. If that man's name is mentioned at Hope Church and just hyper uh, uh, hypothetical, if he's a member of Hope Church or she's a member of Hope Church or something happens, these people are good people and good standing in this church and they're the most corrupt people in the community. Where is our, where is our, our, uh, our, uh, our sense of, of uh, credibility? Where is the gospel? We throw Christ out the door. That's how important it is. Who are members of the church? Why people come to this church? Why people leave this church? It is not just willy-nilly. It is important. That's why you want men of God in the session who agonize and pray over this stuff. Because who wants that responsibility? Not me. I'm not able to do that stuff. So we gather together and pray, oh, Lord God Almighty, our hands are weak, our knees are shaken. You've got to help us because we are not men who are capable of doing this without your help. And that's where Paul is so bold as to say to them, it's come to this point, he goes, open your hearts wide and open your hearts for us because you know who we are and you know and I'm telling you who they are. Who are you going to choose to follow? These people are unbelievers. The gospel they follow is unbelieving 
un- not gospel at all. The un- it's not gospel at all. It's not the truth. And anybody who follows them are unbelievers and treat them as such. Boy, that's fighting words. Those are difficult statements. You just got to chew those one up and talk about those and try to work what that all means. So we need to be careful how we deal this stuff out. But it is not just a proof text about marriage. There's a lot of implications from this passage that are so meaningful and so powerful that I went over 15 minutes because, folks, I'll be gone November 15th after that date. And I, you won't have to worry. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm just a joke. The fact is, is that this is so important. This is your life. This is your identity. This is who you are. This is the gospel. It needs to be that important in your life, not just a Sunday morning activity, not just a nice group of people to be with. This says lots of stuff. So are you willing to take this serious? This is serious stuff, folks. But it's cool stuff, is it not? Cool stuff, exciting stuff. I mean, really, did you see all of that in that passage? I never did. That's why I like teaching, because I see things. I have assumptions. I live by assumptions sometimes. That, oh, I know what that verse means. Wherever two are gathered in my name, oh, I know what that means. Many people be surprised what that doesn't mean. And there's, I'm going to be speaking on something one time if I come back and preach again on the Communion Sunday. I've already got my passage set down for what I want to preach on. One of these things that everybody has an assumption and which we think that we know what it means, and I, it means a lot more than we ever think. So, again, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Not me telling you how important it is, but the Holy Spirit telling you how important this is for everybody who hears this and everybody who calls themselves followers of Christ. If you don't follow Christ, then this means nothing, so go right ahead. <laughs> really? Go right ahead and live any way you want to. Do anything you want to. It doesn't make any difference. But if you feel God pressing that you have to come to an understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what do you do with Jesus, you have to answer yourself these questions, ask yourself these questions and come up with an answer and just hope that it's the right answer. Enough. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so thankful again <clears throat> for your word.